our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen because you don't want to believe, you listen because you want to know. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. This is episode number 16. And incidentally, just a few days ago, Veritas turned to the tender age of four months. A lot has happened in this short amount of time, and all thanks to you the listener, and to those volunteers around the world. I would like to remind you that all our past shows are available to you 24-7 by simply going to our website, veritasshow.com. This show is a listener-sponsored program, and we welcome your voluntary listener contributions. So no matter where around the world you're listening from, be it at our website or at any of our affiliates or even on your iPod, Please take a moment the next time you're on the web. We make it very easy and have a secure PayPal donation button on our homepage, VeritasShow.com. Please make a contribution to keep Veritas alive. No contribution is too small. Veritas is available on Fridays on our website and through the following affiliates. KROX Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network. UPRN 105.8 FM, New Orleans. And more stations are coming soon. You can listen to The Veritas Show on iTunes and RSS feeds throughout cyberspace. We are heard in 114 countries. Yes, you heard that right. From 102, we have climbed to 114 countries. This is evidence that the truth looks beyond boundaries and ideology. I would like to welcome the following 12 new countries listening to Veritas. Bosnia-Herzegovina, Cambodia, 
Costa Rica, Cyprus, Equatorial Guinea, Iceland, Iran, Libya, Namibia, Reunion. And yes, Reunion is a French island territory located in the Indian Ocean east of Madagascar. Trinidad and Tobago and the U.S. Virgin Islands. The U.S. Virgin Islands being one of my former stomping grounds. So hello to my friends in Charlotte O'Malley in St. Thomas, Christiansted and Frederickstead in St. Croix. It's just incredible where the truth and the internet can take us. Tonight's special guest is Nassim Haramine, crossing the event horizon. Nassim will be with us in a few minutes. Next week's special guest is Bob Emenegger, the Holloman Air Force Base UFO landing. In my opinion, one of the most underrated and unknown UFO cases of all time. And the following week, David Sarita. Remember that we have extended the Veritas video contest. Instead of March 31st being the expiration or deadline, it is now April the 30th. So if you're listening and you want to send a promo video for the Veritas video contest, you have until April the 30th. The chat room is now open on Friday evenings through Sunday evenings. And the Manticore, the new forum, is open and free for registration. Go to manticore.com. And now to some news. In the past few shows, I have mentioned that Sergeant Clifford Stone has shared with me a number of declassified U.S. Department of Defense documents. I have also requested permission to share this information, and he has given me authorization to do so. The documents are now available at a special category called Members Only inside the Manticore. In order to access these documents, just register as a member at the Manticore by going to manticore.com and you will see a sub-forum called Members Only. If you are not a member, that forum is not visible to you and you will not be able to access it. Registration is free and it only takes a few seconds. And now I'm going to read to you some of the headlines from our blog. For the rest of the story, go to veritasshow.com and click on Blog. Cyber spies or solar storms, the real threat to U.S. electrical grid. UFO mystery solved, according to Area 51 workers. Otherworldly scenes found on seafloor. An extraterrestrial timeline. And Italy muscled scientists who foresaw quake. And before we take a break, let me remind you that if you have any questions for future guests, just send an email to mail at veritasshow.com or if you would like to recommend a guest, send an email to producer at veritasshow.com and just write a quick and compelling summary of why you believe that guest should be on the Veritas Show. And I have something to share with you. At the end of the show, I will share with you a song I made back in 1998. Nothing professional. However, I sent it to the Billboard Amateur Musician Contest back then and it became one of the finalists in the world music genre. The funny part was that one day, as I was in need of printer paper, I grabbed the certificate, which was turned over, thinking it was a blank piece of paper. I put it inside the printer, and you can figure out what happened with it. At any rate, the song is called Desert Winds, and I'll include it 
at the end of the show. Have you ever wondered why those science classes were at all important? Were you ever curious about the mysteries of ancient Egypt? What about the modern mystery of crop circles? For that and much more, our special guest will attempt to answer all our questions. Nassim Harami. If you want to know, stay with us. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Nassim Haramin was born in Geneva, Switzerland in 1962. As early as nine years old, Nassim was already developing the basis for a unified, hyperdimensional theory of matter and energy, which he eventually called the holofractographic universe. His lifelong exploration into the geometry of space-time has resulted in an exciting comprehensive unification theory based on a new solution to Einstein's field equations. This groundbreaking theory, which incorporates torque, Coriolis effects, and the nonlinear mathematics of fractal systems, has been delivered to the scientific community through peer-reviewed papers and presentations at international physics conferences. His research into a variety of fields, including theoretical physics, cosmology, quantum mechanics, biology, chemistry, and ancient civilizations, has led to a coherent understanding of the fundamental structure and model of the universe. This new view leads to an in-depth change in our current perception of physics and consciousness, weaving together the sciences of advanced physics, cosmology, chemistry, and biology, as well as the wisdom and codes of the ancients. Haramine creates an exciting unified tapestry of space-time, which may prove to be one of the most important scientific, philosophical, and technological discoveries of our time. Haramine is the Director of Research at the Resonance Project, a 501c3 public charity dedicated to the exploration of unification principles and their implications in our world today. The Foundation is actively developing a research park where science, sustainability, green technology, and permaculture come together. By popular demand, it is my privilege to introduce to you, directly from New York, where he's currently traveling through, Nassim Haramid. Nassim, thank you so much for joining us on the Veritas show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that we get to talk. It's our pleasure. Nassim, first of all, please pronounce your name so that throughout the interview I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> My name is Nassim. Nassim Haramid. Nassim Haramid. Very good. Nassim, for those who may not be familiar with you, and your work, maybe a few around the world. Why don't you take us back to your childhood growing in Geneva, Switzerland? Tell us of your history, your background, and how it came to influence your current philosophies. Okay, well, you know, it all started really when I was around 
10 years old. And actually, I, I, although I'm born in Switzerland, I, um, the, the first moments in which I realized there may be a problem in our concepts of the physics of the universe was when I was 10. And at that time, I lived in Montreal, uh, in Canada. And okay. And my first, uh, my first lesson in geometry. And it was a very crucial moment in my history because um, the teacher went to the blackboard and said, today we're going to learn about dimensions. And it's the first lesson in geometry. And, you know, when he said that, because I was a very imaginative boy and I lived in, you know, a whole world inside my head, uh, when he said we're going to learn about dimensions, that I thought he was going to talk about that. And uh, it was a completely different than what I expected. Right. It was a very important lesson. And uh, basically the teacher made a little black, a little dot on the blackboard and said, that dimension zero, and it didn't exist. And as soon as he said that, I knew I was going to be in trouble because... Um, I could see the dot all the way from the back of the class. So if I could see the dot, how is it that it didn't exist? And that was really the start of my exploration of the concepts of dimensions, the concepts of reality, and how it influenced our world. Tell us a story of how the... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, tell us a story of how the trip home from school was an hour and a half because you kept getting kicked out of school, schools that were closest to your home, and you had to go further and further. And a physicist told you you were furthering your education that way. That's right. Uh, I, you know, I was, uh, I was all, I was commonly in trouble at school because uh, I wasn't paying attention much. I, I, like I said, I lived in this whole world was occurring in my head at the same time. And I really thought that, you know, um, there was more important things in that world to learn than the stuff I was being taught at school. So I wasn't doing so good at school. So I kept on getting uh, kicked out or changing from one school to the other. So I ended up going to a school that was almost an hour and a half away from my, my school. And, and the physicist one day told me I was furthering my education that way. And in in one way I was because it was like during that time that I had so much time to think about reality, about the structure that we live in and the people around me. And and during that time, after that lesson in geometry that night, coming back home, I realized that there may be some fundamental errors in in our in our concepts of dimensions. And, you know, that first lesson where, you know, you get taught that a, the, the dot or the point is, is dimension zero and doesn't exist, and then it makes a line that's made out of dot that doesn't exist because it still doesn't enclose space. And then it, uh, a plane is generated out of four lines, and that plane... Uh, still doesn't exist because it still doesn't enclose space. And then all of a sudden, six um, non-existing planes are put together to create a cube. And that's thought to be existence. That's thought to be the third dimension. 
And, you know, I just didn't understand how, uh, you know, planes that are made out of lines that are made out of dots that don't exist, non-existing planes, if you put, like, thousands of them together, I don't care how many you got, you're still not going to enclose space. All you got is non-existence to the fourth, not existence. So I started to think there must be some fundamental error in this axiom of uh, of uh, creation, you know, axiom of dimensions. And so on the way home that night, I started to think, well, how can I solve this? I wanted to figure out a way to solve this fundamental axiom because for me, it was important to understand dimensions. I didn't know at the time, but like all of our math and physics, most of our physics are based on this concept. Like Einstein's field equation is based on flat space, and so is quantum theory, and so on. And so I realized we need to understand dimensions better. But at the time, in my bus on the way home, I thought, I'm going to solve this before I get out of this bus. And basically what I did is I I started to think about the dot and I expanded my mind, I expanded myself in my mind's eye so that I could see the bus from above. And I could see that as I rose up, the bus got smaller and looked like a dot. And then eventually the earth got smaller and looked like a dot. And eventually the solar system got smaller and looked like a dot. And the galaxy got smaller and looked like a dot. And all that seems like dots from infinitely big, you know, as far as I could go. So More I, or less oh, what we saw in the movie Contact at the beginning. Yeah, exactly, or uh, Power of Ten, or, you know, there's, there's multiple movies that have been made like that, or, or you know, this concept that has been, uh, you know, around for a while, but it's never really been applied to physics. In any case, I, I eventually came back in my mind's eye into my into the bus, and I looked at my hand, and I thought, oh, I wonder what it's made of. And I realized as I, you know, in my mind's eye went into my hand that it would be made out of dot we call cells, and then as I looked closely, it was made, that each cell was made of billions of little dots we call atoms, and and then I looked into the middle of an atom, and I realized, oh, wait, there's a dot in the middle. And that dot was probably divisible into smaller dots. And I thought, oh, it's dots all the way down. And actually, this was the first time I had a fundamental concept of, of dimensions uh, that looked much more like a fractal structure. Although I didn't know fractals at the time, I solved the problem of dimensions by saying the exact contrary than the standard axiom, by saying that the only thing that exists is the dot. The only thing that exists is the point, that dimension zero is divisible to infinity, and that the universe makes dots of all sorts of sizes that are divisible to infinity and arranges them together to produce all of our material world, all of our reality. Is the opposite also true? You were removing yourself from the bus, from planet Earth, from the galaxy. Is the opposite also true if you were going backwards? Uh, if you're going back, uh, say, uh, explain what you mean by that. 
instead of you removing yourself from the bus and from planet Earth, can you actually do that backwards and go in? In other words, look in into the most minuscule atom and continue going there infinitely. Yeah, that's what I was um, doing in my hand, right? I, I noticed I was made out of cell, and the cells were made out of atoms and so on. And so right. you can divide to infinity towards the center of a system, or you can expand to infinity. You know, uh, when, you, when you talk to children and you say, okay, well, this is our universe. It has these type of boundaries and so on. The first thing they ask you, what's that universe in, you know? And, and, it's, and I think it's a fair assumption to think that our universe is most likely embedded in a larger one, which is most likely embedded in a larger one and so on to infinity. So it starts to look like a continuum of infinity, uh, infinite boundaries embedded within each other. And, and that gives you a worldview that's completely different, that's completely modified, completely modified from uh, the typical Cartesian uh, plane and Euclidean uh, axioms. Nassim, for our listener audience, please define what the unified theory is and how it can help us in our understanding of who we are today. The unified field theory in physics is thought to be a theory that would unify the four, the four forces. Uh, the forces that rules the large world, uh, that would be gravity and the electromagnetic field, uh, and the forces that um, rules the small world, the quantum world, the world of the atom, which is a strong force and the weak force. Now, um, these two theories that describe these force, in one case, Einstein field equations, relativistic theory, that describes the, the large world, planets, suns, galaxies, and so on, don't agree with the quantum world, which predicts um, the atomic structure, the electrons, the subatomic particles that are made of, and so on. And the two predicts two different things. The relativistic equations predicts that things have a continuum kind of function where it seems to go towards infinity, towards singularity. And quantum theory predicts that it's not infinities, that it's boundary conditions that are very defined and that are linear in functions. And so one says it's infinities, the other says, no, it's boundaries. And what I found from the exploration I did is that it's always both. And that is what unified the field for the physics I wrote. Um, I, I realized that in fact, you can't get infinities without boundaries, and you can't get boundaries without infinities. Every person, and I heard this at another interview, every person, whether it's Copernicus, Galileo, Einstein, Planck, or any of the great minds in history, the one thing they have in common is that they made observations of what already is. They just translated into mathematics so that other physicists could use it. Do you believe the answer to many of our questions is already here for us to discover? Absolutely. I think that one thing that has been the major issue in current physics is that it, um, we have kind of gone away from uh, an experience of nature, observation of nature, and then extrapolating theories from it. Instead, in general, our physics... Uh, are explored by uh, 
you know, riding further and further complex math and trying to find unification principles by uh, adding many, many dimensions and so on and, and actually complexifying the theory. And I think that actually what's crucial is for us to I think, return to observation of nature because I think that in nature is all the answers. We just got to look at it with a critical eye and experience it. And from that experience, we can, um, um, you know, we can extrapolate very fundamental principles of creation. Uh, many of the giants uh, of science uh, did exactly that. You know, they, they experienced nature, they observed it very critically, and they extrapolated advanced theories from it. And that's kind of missing at this point. Nassim, you frequently talk about the geometry of the universe. I also saw you mention how to, you climbed a mountain with your telescope to watch comet Shoemaker-Levy hit Jupiter. You also observed how Jupiter's red spot is one and a half size the size of Earth and how it stays on the same spot that you'd expect that perhaps like a hurricane, it would deviate, it would dissipate eventually or move in a latitude different than the one where it is, but it does not. You said that it could be the tet tetrahedron inside the sphere. That spot is latitude 19.47 degrees. We always call it here at the show 19.5, just to round it. Not only you have noticed, but other researchers like Richard C. Hoagland. What can you tell us of the significance of latitude 19.5, not only exhibited on Jupiter, but Volcano Olympus months on Mars, the Mauna Loa volcano in Hawaii, the pyramids at, the, at Teotihuacan in Mexico, and many other locations. Can you tell us more about latitude 19.5 and its significance? Yeah, I can. Uh, but, and, you know, in order to make that clear, I would have to explain a little bit more about the theory I wrote. The theory I wrote, um, as I was saying earlier, as, you know, I explored it further and further from my childhood, showed that actually finite structures and and an infinite uh, uh, continuum were were related by geometry related by the fundamental structure a uh, fundamental structure that would be fractal in nature and people at home can even try this don't try it if you're driving right now if you're listening <laughs> to the show But uh, if you have a piece of paper and, you, and, and a pen, you can make a circle, and inside the circle, make a triangle, an equilateral triangle, and then put a reverse triangle, and what you'll have is a six-pointed star inside the circle. Like and the Star of David. Put, yeah, like the Star of David. And actually, it's interesting that this, this geometric example, which is one of the, the most important one, I believe, to describe the relationship between infinities and finite system. That very example is, is found in many, many different ancient cultures all around the world. But if you take that star, David, or that six-pointed star, and you put smaller triangles on each of the points, you'll get smaller stars of David. You'll get next resolution down of the fractal structure, And each of these new stars of David's are going to define a very specific space that you could put a, a circle around them and get a new boundary. And each of these boundaries is a very individual 
coordinates in space-time. That is, they're all very specific in their position to each other, but they're all part of the larger boundary you started with. Then you can make smaller triangle on that new set of, of, um, of tetrahedrons or uh, that new set of triangles, and now you get even smaller boundaries. And you can continue to do that, get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller boundaries. You can do this to infinity. If you get this to a computer, uh, you know, the computer will continue to make boundaries towards infinity, and they will, it will never end. You can get the computer to zoom in and continue to make boundaries and zoom in and continue to make boundaries. However, if you, um, if you divide the space continuously towards infinity like that, you will never, ever, ever exceed that first boundary you made for yourself. So in the context of what appears to be a finite space, you can embed infinite amount of information. That's a very crucial understanding of the theory I'm writing. That is that space can be divided to infinity. If this is true, that means the atom can be divided to infinity. Each subatomic particle inside the atom can be divided into smaller one, into smaller one, into smaller one. That has a huge impact on the way we uh, think about physics. For instance, if we understood this in physics, we probably stop building larger and larger accelerators to get smaller and smaller particles because we know that it would continue to divide and we could just continue to build larger accelerator, and it's not going to tell us much about the universe. What we would look for is what is the fundamental geometry under which the universe divides. So here, I have an infinite amount of information embedded within the context of a finite system. So that means that every atom that you're made of currently could have infinity within them. That would mean each, uh, that like subatomic particles uh, that makes up the atom are all kind of mini black holes because they have infinite mass. And so um, uh, infinite division prob probabilities. And so that changes your world. I mean, it changes your world in physics, but it certainly changes your world in philosophy to understand that every point can have an infinity in it. So when I start to realize that, I realized that maybe the material world is not a function, uh, meaning that it's not the material world that defines the space, but maybe it's just the space dividing, defining the material world. So it's kind of a reversal of our typical experience of uh, the material world, of reality, thinking that matter does not define the space, but the space defines matter. Uh, and every time the space divides into smaller and smaller scales, it either makes a galaxy, a, a star, a planet, an atom, a subatomic particle, and so on. And when I did that, I started to realize, if that's true, then there must be a fundamental geometry that defines the division of the space. And I started to look for it. And as I looked for it, it became self-evident that it had to be tetrahedral in nature. And a tetrahedron is like a pyramid with a triangle base. It's the smallest, most stable solid 
and and eventually I realized on you know that it must be not only tetrahedral but it must be um, cuboctahedral, uh, and that you know as well is called a vector equilibrium. It's like eight tetrahedrons put together collapsing towards a singularity, a singularity towards the center. And uh, when I realized that, I started to look around in nature to see if there was evidence of it, that I could find evidence of it many different places. And like Richard Oglin and other researchers, I looked at planets because they're easy to see and we, can, we have good data on it on them and so on. So I started to look at planets, and sure enough, like Richard, I realized that there was a very large energy events at very specific areas on most planets that mapped out the geometry of a tetrahedron embedded or, you know, enclosed into the globe or into the sphere of the planet. So, for instance, on Jupiter, the large vortex at 19... Uh, 0.5 or 19.47, uh, you know, the sun spots on the sun keep appearing at those latitudes, north and south, uh, the most active vol- volcanoes on Earth in Hawaii, uh, and so on. And so I started to say, oh, to see, like, physical evidence of this fundamental geometry of the space influencing matter how matter organizes to produce our reality. I can see what you're saying with natural occurrence of the, the volcanoes, but when you go to the pyramids, which were made by an intelligent life form, didn't we have technology before that was obviously taken away from us because that happened thousands of years ago? And also, we chose the spot on the moon, I believe it was Sea of Tranquility, to be latitude 19.5 as well. Um, yeah, the, you know, there's a bunch of different things, but uh, certainly when you look at the ancient civilization and certainly pyramidal structures that are found around the world, first of all, I want to I clarify that according to my theory and what I describe in the mathematics of my papers, the um, the geometry of the structure of the vacuum is more than just one tetrahedron. It's 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 an array of tetrahedron, uh, you know, that creates cuboctahedrons. And when you look at the planets, the bands of the various levels on the planet, like the bands that you see on Jupiter, the bands that you see on Saturn, and all this they obey a much more complex geometry than just tetrahedral geometry, but actually an array of tetrahedral geometry that defines very specific latitudes. And that confirms my model very, very strongly. Then, uh, and, and people say, well, okay, well, these ancient people talked about geometry as a fundamental structure of the universe, but, but they didn't build tetrahedrons, they built pyramids. Well, you know, the cube octahedron is an, is an assortment of tetrahedrons and uh, octahedrons, which are pyramidal. And that was um, crucial uh, because maybe they were actually mapping the tetrahedral geometry using the octahedron 
cavities between the tetrahedron to create a resonance field, but that's a little bit more complex. So one thing is for sure, is when you look at these buildings, and when you look at these ancient civilizations, there's a very large disparity between theory on how these buildings were built and the actual data. I mean, one example is the Grand Pyramid at Giza at 281 feet of altitude. The base of the pyramid is 13 acres square, and the apex of the pyramid, after having placed 2,300,000 stone, is still only a quarter of an inch off-center after all the earthquakes that have occurred in 5,000 years. So they might have had it dead on when they built it. And this type of accuracy is nothing we could reproduce with all of our technology today. So something extraordinary must have happened. And the pyramid at Giza is only one example. There's many, many different temples and buildings all around the world uh, that, you know, really kind of raise eyebrows. When you actually look at the engineering and you look at the data and you don't just go with the archaeologic, um, you know, theories, which is based on thousands and thousands, hundreds and thousands of slaves and vine ropes. And, you know, you can have as many slaves as you want. When the accuracy and the engineering is past what we could do today, it's not a question of just brute force. It's a question of sophistication and advanced mathematics and so on, which um, these ancient civilization did not have. So there's a great mystery there. And I think, you know, and, and when I did my studies, I did studies in physics, I did a lot of studies in physics, but I did a lot of studies in ancient civilization at the same time. And uh, eventually I realized that somebody else had done exactly the same. His name was Isaac Newton. Uh, Newton actually studied ancient Kabbalistic texts and many mystic texts for 15 to 20 years prior to writing physics. And uh, when he, in his private journals, he made clear that he got most of his physics from studying these civilizations. And from my conclusion, I started to realize that maybe there was a very advanced civilization on our planet that had left remains and had left clues for future generations to discover uh, of the fundamental structure of the vacuum, the fundamental structure of creation, and how we could use it to improve our society. You mentioned Saturn. In your analysis, you continue to observe other interesting facts. For example, the recent images taken by the Cassini probe shows an enormous hexagonal feature on the North Pole of Saturn, first taken 27 years ago and still persistent to this day. The same probe shows a gigantic vortex at the South Pole of Saturn, which seems to be absorbing matter in a whirlpool. The South Pole vortex leads to the center of the planet, there's speculation that there are entries at the poles on planet Earth. Have you studied this possibility? Yeah, um, you know, my model predicts, first of all, my model predicts that, uh, that it would be uh, reasonable to see actual um, geometries like the hexagon on the North Pole of Saturn, where actually the plasma dynamics is moving at some 300 miles per hour and turning corners, making an hexagon approximately one and a half times the size of the Earth on the North Pole of Saturn. But my model as well predicts, see, 
the, the, the tetrahedral geometry in my model is the geometry of the vacuum, the geometry of the space. Um, but the dynamics of the space that makes up a reality is actually a double torus. A torus is like a donut. And if you imagine two donuts on, each, on top of each other turning in opposite direction because of Coriolis effect, that right. would be the model that... You know, so one, the collapsing of the vacuum, which is a gravitational side, is the tetrahedral geometry, the cuboctahedron collapsing. And the result of that collapsing of the vacuum produces a radiative effect that we call the electromagnetic field, and that's the double torus structure. And um, so you would expect uh, vortices at the poles of planets, and it's really great to see them on Saturn demonstrated so obviously. And, you know, those structures are certainly not accounted by the standard model, but would, are predicted by my model. And they're found as well at the north and south pole of Saturn, of, of Jupiter, the north and south pole of the sun. They're in the plasma dynamics we see everywhere. And certainly you can easily see them at the north and south pole of black holes, like the center of galaxies and quasars and so on. All these objects have huge vortices at the north and south pole, these, producing this double torus structure that we see so well demonstrated in, galaxy, in galaxies. So, you know, all this kind of works out to a very comprehensive model, which actually eliminates the strong and weak force of the, of the quantum theory uh, assumptions and replace them with gravity and the electromagnetic field. In my latest papers, I prove that we can solve atoms as mean black holes and that actually we don't need to have a strong force to keep the protons together, but that it's actually gravity that's acting on mini black holes we call protons and that there's plenty of gravity to hold the atom together without the need for a strong force. So, um, you know, all this starts to give a unified model and I can solve for unification using semi-classical physics like Einstein field equations, all the way from universal size, all the way down to subatomic particles of the atom, and I get the right answers, meaning I get the right, you know, decase uh, emissions and so on for the atom, but I don't use two theories that conflict with each other. So what you're saying is that planet Earth also should have those two vortices on each pole? Yeah, actually, those two vortices on each pole have been found. They're geomagnetic vortices. They were found about a few, uh, about a decade ago, and uh, and you know they were found as a result of us finding that there was ozone holes at the north and south pole of our planet. And at first, it was thought that that was the result of various chemicals polluting the atmosphere and making holes in the in the ionosphere in the ozone layer. But actually, they realized that. It was actually because there is a, a north and south pole uh, 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 magnetic vortices, um, geomagnetic vortices, and the ions of the uh, ozone layer follows the vortices towards the, the ground, and so it makes holes in the north and south pole. So what happens in practical terms? If you take a, a, a ship, 
uh, an icebreaker ship and you go all the way to those vortices, what would happen to you if you continue to go until you reach those vortices? Well, um, you know, they, they, these vortices have been kept track of. They're, they're measured all the time. People go and measure them all the time. And, you know, one thing is that they seem to have been accelerating. Um, so that means that there's changes that are occurring, and those changes might be precursor to pole shifts on our planet. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you're, what you're leading to is the the inner earth theories that 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 yes. may be whole that they may be whole holes at the north and south pole my theory would predict that yes they would be they could be holes at the poles um you know in, in the case of saturn they're becoming apparent uh, but these holes would probably fill up and and open up periodically uh, because the center of the vortex would be very cold. So any moisture there would ice up and plug the hole with ice. And I think that's why we find ice at the poles of all the planets, or we find that the poles of all the planets are much cooler than the equator, including for the sun. And um, so I don't know, and my theory as well would predict that the center of the Earth would have a certain amount of space in it, that there would be a part that would be hollow. And and that actually, and this might be a little shocking, but um, that actually our planet is the host of a, of a mini, of a small black hole at the center that provides the energy potential that our planet has, the rotation that our planet has, which is not explained in standard theory, if you ask a physicist, why is the Earth spinning? Can't really tell you what's why, where it got its uh, angular moment, or where or where it got its magnetic moment. So, if you take actually the magnetic field at the surface of the Earth, which is about seven Gauss, which is quite large, considering you know that it must have emitted from the center of the Earth, from the core of the Earth, and you know magnetic field drops at the square of the distance. So. You know, it would have to be, if you calculate backwards towards the center and try to figure out how strong it would have to be in the center, you almost, you need a black hole in the middle of the planet to produce such a large magnetic field. Now, you know, I know that many scientists out there would find that preposterous, but we're finding more and more. You've got to realize that 15 years ago, my, my theory predicted we were going to find black holes at the center of all galaxies, and I was... You know, in some cases, laughed out of physics conference for that. However, you know, black holes were found at the center of all galaxies. My my theory as well predicted that black holes were there prior to the galaxies, not that the mass of the galaxy produced a black hole, but but that the black hole is the source of material existence, and so that it produced a galaxy. And uh, now, just recently, with new probes, we've been able to tear past. Uh, about one billion year after the Big Bang, which is very early after the Big Bang, and we're finding that black holes seem to have been there before galaxies. So, you know, I mean, my theory predicts there's a black hole at the center of the sun, there's a black hole at the center of the Earth, and so on. And that black holes are not just monsters that are absorbing material, but they actually emit material at the same time. And there's, there's this feedback between what radiates, like the white hole portion, what radiates out and what goes in, what goes back towards center. 
you mentioned the, the vortices again, going back to them. I've seen satellite pictures where they look like holes. It looks like a whirlpool, like a spiral. Right, right. You know, my theory really kind of changed the whole idea of um, the concept of matter. You know, it's like space is not empty, right? What we call the vacuum is not empty. And in quantum theory, we know it's not. It's actually very dense, 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cube, which is, which is more dense than all of the universe squished into a centimeter cube of space. All the matter we see in the universe is 10 to the 55th gram. So, you know, 10 to the 94 grams per centimeter cube is more by almost 40 orders of magnitude than all of the universe squished in a centimeter cube of space. And this, this value is used from in, in physics all the time. And it actually was demonstrated by the Casimir effect in laboratory. And so... We know it's there. So when we think of empty space, we got to think of something that that that's not really that doesn't really exist. Um, the vacuum of uh, so-called empty space is actually very very dense. And so this theory says that actually it's the energy that's in the vacuum that produces our material world. Just like you can imagine the water in a pool as the energy of the vacuum, and when there's a little vortex in the pool somewhere, you say, oh, there's something, you see it, right? You see an, a dynamic, but it's actually a dynamic of the water in the pool. Well, the same thing here. Imagine that, that what you think of it as empty space is actually full, and wherever there's a little vortex, a little dynamic in that fullness, you say, oh, there's something, there's an atom, there's a planet, there's a sun, there's a galaxy, and so on. And actually, all these things are being fed directly by this energy in the vacuum. Now, you might say, well, if it's so dense, why can't I experience it? Well, that's because it all cancels out. It's so incredibly dense that the geometry that it produces is in perfect equilibrium. So it cancels out and it appears to us as, any, as nothing. And when it doesn't cancel out, it produces a little vortex. When there's a little asymmetry, it produces a little vortex, and you call that matter. NASA, before we take a break, let me ask you this question. You mentioned the Big Bang. If the universe is ever-expanding... Does that mean that the Big Bang never stopped? Right. That's the thing. It's like this, this model as well would say that, no, yeah, the Big Bang is, is just one event. And, and most likely as we expand, then as we move up towards the pole of where we would be expanding, you would see contraction in this feedback of the torus structure. And um, people can see that on, on our website, the, the resonanceproject.org. And, um, and that actually, as things expand, obviously something is contracting, and the contractive part is the part that we've missed. And, and really, the contractive part is the part where things co coalesce and go towards order. And um, um, I'm sorry, ask your question again. No, I was just saying that if the universe is ever expanding, does that mean that the Big Bang never stop. It's just a chain reaction that continues forever. Yeah, exactly. So, so the Big Bang is just one of the bangs, you know, this, this, 
this continuous expansion contraction feedback loop is occurring at all levels. So, so in this model, it's a continuous creation model. So that there's atoms being created at the center of all black holes. And that's why not only is the expansion occurring in our universe, but it's accelerating because actually material is being created inside it. And we'll take a quick break. We're here with Nassim Haramine, his latest work, Crossing the Event Horizon. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from GarageBand.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on Show Info and Music, look up the song and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at GarageBand.com.